Welcome to the Review Your Name podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me on the show tonight, we have Chris. Yo. And Sam. Hello. We got a packed show for you guys tonight. We're going to talk about two of the biggest news stories of the week in uh, Matt Smith's announcement that he'll be leaving Doctor Who and Dan Harmon's announcement that he'll be returning to Community. We are going to do a retrospective of Veronica Mars, now that everyone on this podcast has seen the show, some of us earlier than others of us. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about Veronica Mars, the highs and lows, and our expectations for the movie. And we're going to talk uh, return to the renamed Movie Club and talk about Lena Dunham's Tiny Furniture. So we got a big show tonight. I want to dive right into it um, and kick things over to you, Sam, to discuss Matt Smith's announcement. Yeah, well... Like we said, the big announcement is that Matt Smith is leaving Doctor Who. And while it's not necessarily a surprise that he's leaving because no one's the Doctor forever, and he was going to have to give it up sometime, and I think most of us thought he would be leaving soon, um, I think there is some surprise that he only has two episodes left. Granted, they're pro- they're, you know, one of them is the Christmas special, and one of them is the uh, 50th anniversary special, which I think is going to be 90 minutes. Yeah, supposedly it will be 90 minutes, though. I don't know that it's been confirmed, so it may be just an hour. So I'm, I'm assuming that one will probably be supersized, like those old NBC comedies of the early aughts. Um, it'll, and, I remember those. Yeah. Didn't it help? Nothing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it definitely helped him feel padded and overlong. Yeah. Uh, um, and he's going to have uh, the Christmas special, which is where they have said he will regenerate. Now, I don't know what you guys want to talk about first. It's hard to talk about whether we like the idea of him leaving in this fashion, since we don't know how Stephen Moffat's going to do it. But we can talk about, are you guys happy that the fields of Trenzalore actually did bring about the fall of the 11th, kind of, in a real way? Jordan? Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I, you and I talked about this briefly before, and obviously it is not clear that it did. Um, from the finale, I was left thinking, well... The prophecy seems to not have been fulfilled, if this is the case. Uh, and that's kind of strange. However, now knowing what was revealed there, uh, we will get into spoilers in a minute, but for the moment we won't spoil. Um, knowing what was revealed in The Name of the Doctor, uh, and now knowing we have two episodes left, it is quite possible that what happened at Trenzalore will, in fact, lead to the fall of the 11th. So I think that's good, because it, it was something that... It would have struck me as strange if it didn't, considering that seemed to be where... Uh, Matt Smith's run as the Doctor was building narratively, so I'm glad that it now looks like it may tie up that way. I am less glad, however, that the fact that we only have two episodes left means that we have, in fact, probably seen the last of River Song. Probably, but you, you know what? It, there's, you know, I feel like there's a good chance that she can show up in the 50th, and I think there's probably an even better chance that she would show up in the Christmas special. I would hope that we see her at least one more time because, as you are always, uh, as you always have fun pointing out, there are things we still do not know and still have not seen from uh, River and the Doctor's timeline that we know are out there. We just have not seen. So theoretically, there's more story there. Yeah, I always like I, I like to go back to um, Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead, where things are very explicitly laid out: uh, points of time, objects, pieces of knowledge. Um, Things like River knowing the Doctor's name. Have we gotten that cleared up? Has that no. been cleared up at in all? In fact, it, it explicitly... Like, we know that she knows his name, both from Silence in the Library and from when she says it in uh, The Name of the Doctor. But we have not had it cleared up that um, 
we've not had it cleared up how she learned it because in the wedding of River Song, when he claims he said his name to her, he did not. Which has me worried because she has to find out at some point, right? I mean, my thing is, we know they have plenty of off-screen adventures. They are always referencing things that we did not see. So if at the end of the day, we have never seen River hear the doctor's name, we have never seen River get the uh, screwdriver from him, I can just assume that happened some point that we didn't see, and I guess that's fine. I would prefer to I could, see one or both of those things happen. I can forgive the screwdriver, even though I think they should show that. Um, but I don't think I can forgive something that's such a big deal as as uh, River learning the name. Because in the episode, if you remember, David Tennant says, there's only one reason why I would tell anyone my name. Right. And and that's like, well, what is it? I mean, that's that's... What uh, Stephen Moffat just deliberately dropped on every fan of the show. And, and what's so great about the episode is that it promises that all these things will be revealed. So tune in uh, when you watch Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. Um, and it, it hasn't given us everything. Um, it's given us some things. And I definitely i am glad that the character of River Song has been enriched. But um, I don't know. I, I, I definitely don't think, I don't think that they would continue River Song with another Doctor, even though I suppose that's possible. Uh, yeah, obviously it's possible, but it really, it feels like uh, Matt Smith is River's Doctor. You know, she she had her adventure with, with David Tennant, but for the most part, I feel like Eleven uh, is the Doctor that River knew. And it, it se- we've seen, for those of you who've seen the special features from Series 6, we've seen that the Doctor who takes her to Derillium to see the Singing Towers the last time she sees the Doctor before the library is the 11th Doctor. So, I feel That's like... true, but since it's technically out of order, she can see any number of Doctors. I mean, she could... Theoretically, she could have adventures with every single Doctor. Like, we know that she hasn't that we saw, but in theory, I think, I think there are, like, uh, non-canon or potentially non-canon novels and things in which she meets earlier Doctors, so... Obviously, that's possible. It's possible that she could be around the show forever. I don't think that will be the case, though. No, no. I would assume she's done when uh, when Matt Smith leaves, which is the Christmas special. But, you know, maybe they'll do what Tenant... I mean, they did for Tenant. With Tenant... Uh, I guess it was it was the last episode before they did the series of specials. Um, yeah, Journey Where they, they, got the whole, they got the whole team back together for one last hurrah, which was very fun. I'd like, I'd like the Christmas special to be a very big deal in that way. I'd like there to be, you know, like you said, the, the getting the gang back together. There were lots of callbacks to characters we knew before and what they were up to now. I'd sort of like uh, the 11th Doctor to have a send-off like that because, I mean, I've loved the Matt Smith era. There have been a lot of characters I love. Uh, we've obviously gotten a lot of Jenny Strax and Vastra lately, but I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more of them, especially if they too will leave uh, with the 11th Doctor, which obviously is not guaranteed but is possible. But um, I guess since, Chris, I don't know, have you gotten to uh, Matt Smith yet? Uh, yeah, I have seen Series 5 and 6. I have not seen any of 7 yet. Okay. So we will, uh, for, for those of you who are in the same position as Chris, we will tread lightly spoiler-wise. It, it's fine. Like, don't, if you want to do that for the listeners, that's fine. But with, for me, I can kind of tune out for a minute or so. Uh, Chris well, does do you have thoughts well. on the departure of Matt Smith, even though you haven't seen the latest season yet? I, I will be very sad to see him go, but it's it's the nature of the beast. Um, I mean, it's I, I for me the moment where I clicked with Doctor Who, where I started understanding why 
uh, everyone loved it the way they did, and I felt that same love for it was when Stephen Moffat and Matt Smith became the showrunner and the Doctor. So it's it's sad for me because that's for me even though I started watching with the Russell T Davies reboot with Ecclestone's the Doctor for me my first Doctor I consider to be Matt Smith because I look back on all the previous series in a much greater light after having Smith kind of show me why it is that Doctor Who is the phenomenon that it is. So I, I am, I'm definitely really sad to see him go because um, he's, he's my favorite Doctor. So, but at the same time, I, I think it's exciting. I, I, th- this has become a part of the mythos I really, really love. So I think there is kind of like an air of excitement around it now, like it, it, to go along with the disappointment. I, I like the speculation of who's going to be the next Doctor. How is that con- chemistry going to work? Just what, what's coming next? I think yeah. it's cool. I agree. I think it's I think it's sort of central to the show that every couple years, you know, you hope it's going to be slightly longer than it is almost always, I think. Or at least I yeah. do. But every couple years, the doctor will leave and you'll get a new doctor. Um and I will I'll reiterate Matt Smith is is the the era that clicked to me and Sam, that may be the case for you as well, right? Matt Smith the era that clicked. Yeah, like Matt Smith is is uh you know, I liked I liked Eccleston and Tennant. I really liked Tennant as the doctor and I liked a lot of Davies era stuff. But for me, the golden era of the, of this reboot it has been the Matt Smith era and Stephen Moffat as showrunner. Well, I think, I think ultimately Moffat's had better seasons, though I think this last season was actually on the weaker side. Um, I think it's probably the, the weakest of uh, Moffat's seasons since taking over as showrunner. Um, I think his seasons as a whole have been much stronger, though... I find, looking back, that a lot of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who came during the Russell T. Davies era, though they were I, mostly written by Stephen Moffat. But it was I was just going to say, that, that, I think that's true of me as well. I think uh, my favorite episodes are, are Moffat's episodes in the earlier era, but my favorite se- uh, seasons of the show, my favorite Doctor, um, has been Eleven and Stephen Moffat running things. So like, I, I loved the Stephen Moffat episodes of Doctor Who when I watched uh, Eccleston and Tennant's tenures um and the Davies era as showrunner but I never loved the show as much as I do now before Matt Smith was the doctor I always had reservations and those have mostly been wiped out even though it's still you know an uneven show and we can talk about the problems there but to me oh go ahead sorry I think I part of watching Doctor Who is kind of being deliriously infatuated with whoever's playing the doctor and you say no one else can play it as well as dot 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 and I'm sure people have been saying that for years, except for maybe that one doctor who I think regenerated and tried to rape his companion. Which one was that? That was the one with like the weird <laughs> multicolored suit. Yeah, that's Jordan the sixth do- doctor. Jordan, no, Jordan knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's the I'm sixth doctor. It's called Baker. Um, I think people kind of hated him for that. But um, but I think it's like a real phenomenon of Doctor Who. It's that people, people love the doctor. And I remember when I was watching Eccleston, I like at the end I loved him and I was so sad to see him go and then David uh, uh, David Tennant came and then the only thing I think about was you know everybody likes David Tennant but I don't know I really like Chris Eccleston and then I watched the Tennant seasons and I I, I basically fell in love with his uh, portrayal of the Doctor and then when Matt Smith came I'm like oh it's this young guy with a weird face taking over Tennant and he was great too and then now I think. No one could fill Matt Smith's shoes, but, you know, I mean, I guess it'll ultimately be, I think, in the hands of the showrunner, and I think it's going to still be uh, Stephen Moffat in this case. 
Yeah, but, uh, I, I do. I don't expect that the show will take a quality nosedive because, as far as we know at this point, and I think I, I don't know that it's been confirmed, but as far as we know, Moffat will continue as showrunner. And he, I mean, he's talking about engaging in the search for the next Doctor, so I think the assumption is that he will be showrunner. Yeah, I mean, I think people people could, if they assume that he would leave with Smith, that would kind of make sense. I mean, I think Davies was gonna was leaving in conjunction really with Tennant, and he was his Doctor, and they were done. Um, you know, I think Moffat might have a few more seasons in him. I'd like, yeah, I, I imagine Moffat will, if he's starting the 12th Doctor, I would imagine he will probably stay the tenure of the 12th Doctor as well. I mean, I, obviously that's not guaranteed, and he could leave at the end of any season. Um, but my assumption is if he's, if he's re-upping, he would probably stay for that as well, because it seems like the show, I mean, they've only tra- changed uh, showrunners in the new era once, but it seems to make sense to me that they would sort of want to give a new showrunner a clean slate. Sure. Um, but before we move on, just one more thing. I know when when these episodes actually do air, I think we'll be able to give more of a Matt Smith. Oh, and we will talk uh, more tribute. about Matt Smith and how much we love him. Yeah. Um, but for now, I just want to know what you guys think. What do you guys want to see from the next Doctor? Of course, we don't know who it is, and if I had to bet money on it, I would bet that it's not a big name, whoever they do end up getting. Yeah, I'm ignoring all of the speculation because it's always wrong. Like, I look... I look back at every time they've speculated in the past, and it's always like, all these people, and it's never any of them. You know, it's Matt like, Smith, was, and Matt that's Smith when, was in the ring a day before he was announced. Yeah. It's like, and that's when Sean Connery was named the Doctor. He comes out of retirement to play the Doctor. I would watch. Uh, yeah, well, we will watch anyway, but do I would you, be... Do you, would you guys want an older Doctor? I mean, you got to go older at some point. They can't just keep going younger. Matt Smith was the youngest. Matt Smith so it, was the youngest, but you could go younger. He could be a twenty-four-year-old. Uh, uh... Yeah, and I mean, it, like obviously, they could they could keep going younger, and you could eventually have a teenage doctor. They may go younger this time, but at some point, they will have to go older again. Uh, I have no problem with the idea. Some people have speculated, obviously, because people are speculating everything at this point, that the next doctor will be more like the first doctor and be more of a grandfather type, um, which would be kind of in keeping with the way that uh, the show has aged Smith's performance over the last. Uh, Several or the last season, really, but also the regeneration is a way to rejuvenate the show and rejuvenate the doctor. So I don't know that that necessarily has to be the case. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that they would go in that direction just because it, it's become so such a a cult phenomenon now. Um, I, and especially, I, I think there's a huge, um, I think there's a huge, very young fan following there. So I think I, I could see from a showrunner's perspective, from a network perspective, that from a studio's pr- perspective, an older Doctor being a bit of a risk, where your audience is like, like the Doctor Who audience. I think for the majority part is is people younger than us. At least well, I think I the, his, the history personally. of the show is it's always been for kids. I mean, even yeah. when they were having grown ass men, you know, when they had Colin Baker and they had you know. William right. Hartnell, who was in his seventies when he was yeah. on the show. That, I mean, yeah, it was it, a, it's in a the kid past, show. In the past two or three years, and I, I think a large part of this is due to um, uh, oh, why am I blanking on his name for a second? Doctor before this doctor, uh, David Tennant. David Tennant. David Tennant. I, I think a large part of it was due to like some crossover between the Harry Potter fans because of David Tennant. David Tennant just has a a thing that younger fans kind of liked about him like doctor who has enjoyed a resurgence of popularity hugely in the past several years um and i i a lot of that audience i've seen is very young um so i don't know that 
like I, I think they would want to keep this train going, keep that ride going. And you have this series of two very popular, very young, sort of like um, geek chic type doctors. So I, I kind of would consider them. I, I, I would foresee them more like following in that role, just because that's kind of become the norm for a little, for what the fans could seem to expect. At least the more recent acquisition fans. I also don't want to. Uh throw my lot in with the crazy people, uh, Peter Purvis and others who used to be involved in old Doctor Who. Uh, but I do think that the show has gotten more interested in the Doctor as a potential romantic uh, interest to his companions, to River, et cetera, et cetera. And that does tend to uh, involve having a younger Doctor. I don't think it necessarily yeah. has to, but if they are trying to keep like the, the sexification of Doctor Who, uh, even to the very, very slight, very chaste way that it has been, yeah. Um, going, then they would probably skew younger. So I would assume we will have another young-ish Doctor. I, I'm sure because like the the new iterations of Doctor Who have all been like young and hip and like like with a retro style, but still like um, very um, cool. Yeah, very cool. Like, but like in in a nerdy nerd cool sort of yeah. like that. That's I think Doctor Who as a concept personifies sort of nerd cool almost better than anything else I can really think about right now. I think. Yeah. Do you guys think? Uh, I mean, what, I, I, what I'm concerned about is I don't want them to try to find a Matt Smith proxy, which is yeah. not what I'm afraid they will actually go do. I want them to find, even if he is on the younger side, you know, to appeal to that base, um, I, want, I want the Doctor to be different. I mean, even though you can say, like, well, Tennant and Smith were both kind of, like, chic, cool they were, they were very, very, though. very different. They were very, yeah. very different. And Eccleston was completely different. I mean, Eccleston was a little bit older, and he was he was darker. And I'm I'm really I'm hoping that they they change the tone of the Doctor. I'm not saying necessarily darker or lighter or whatever, but I don't want I just I don't want it to be. I mean, I guess I I used to think this is what I wanted, but I realized watching the three iterations of the Doctor, it's not what I want. I don't want a new actor who's just reading the same lines. That would be for the doctor before them no i mean it, it it would end up feeling like an echo um matt smith uh and again i think i will ooze over him and praise him a ton in uh once the 50th anniversary special is aired i can do yeah. a whole segment talking about how much i love him and he is my favorite doctor of the five doctors that i have seen so far going through the show he's my favorite iteration but i still think um there's something special about the way he's played the doctor and if he continues to be my favorite you know once i've seen several more uh that's great, but I don't want every other Doctor to echo him. I think the only way uh, the show works is if each Doctor is different than the last, and I would like an actor who's going to differentiate himself, or herself, obviously, uh, because there's always, you know, at least a uh, token woman in the running, and I would hope that that everyone at least considers the idea that at some point the Doctor might be a woman, though I well, imagine I'm, it's such a giant risk. I was going to ask you guys, last thing before we have to move on, because we have so much to talk about, will the next Doctor be a white male? Um, Ooh. I would like to say no, because A, they have all been white men, and yeah. just in the nature of change, it'd be cool to not have a white man. Um, I would also like to say no, because like I just said, every time you see like all the speculation, and even the list of people who are actually in consideration, you see what I would call at this point a token woman, a token person of a color. Um, you see people thrown in there who are uh, not white men, and then they don't get the part, uh, and it seems like they're thrown in there mostly so that the show doesn't get criticized for only uh, considering white men. Sure. I mean, since it's all been white men so far, it would not surprise me if it continued to be a white man. 
And um, I understand that there's a lot of like, oh, the show would be taking a huge risk if it casts someone who is that markedly different than the other Doctors. But that's the point. The show, the Doctor regenerates and things yeah. change potentially entirely. So I will throw it out there. I don't know how likely it is, but I would prefer the next Doctor to be a woman or a person of color. See, I, I, would, I would say that that would be much less of a risk than issuing youth for an older Doctor. But at the same time, like, I'm immediately thinking about um, the uproar that happened when um, they announced that uh, when, when Daniel Glover was in contention for, well, wasn't even in contention for Spider-Man, just wanted to audition for Spider-Man. But um, I'd, I'd like that. I, I think that would be a good way to go. I think that would be a really cool kind of divergence and a, and a great break from um, Smith and Tennant, who... I think, well, very different portrayals were also kind of very much from this, a similar mold in how they portrayed the, the Doctor. Uh, so what do you think, Sam? Um, well, I feel like there, there's really zero reason why the Doctor has to be a white, a white person. I mean, I can, I can maybe consider arguments saying that the, like, the character is male, like he is a male Time Lord, and there have been female Time Lords. Um, there have also been Time Lords reference to change gender. Well, there you go. So I guess you could do it. Um, Though I think I, I I I do think that there has been argument again. Um, I believe that the that when this comes up is in an era that I haven't seen yet, or it may even been be in one of the radio dramas or something. But I know there is a Time Lord out there who has changed gender. But I think it is commented on as strange. Doesn't mean it wouldn't happen, but um, I do think that 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 would be maybe a bigger leap. Yeah, I mean, I find it less likely that it'll actually be a woman, just because, well, I think a large part of it is General Louise Coleman, I think, is going to be around for whoever's the doctor after yes. Smith, and they're not going to want to double up on the sexes. Um, uh, I mean, they might. I think it would actually be interesting to see a sort of girl power Doctor Who for a little while, where you, where you have uh, Clara, who's learned from this season, and who is a, a little bit more... Uh, tough and badass and ready to go and a female doctor that would be cool and you could always change clara out when i imagine coleman decides she wants to leave at the end of next season or maybe the season after if she's incredibly long lasted for a companion of late um i agree it would be cool but i don't think I they just, would do that they gotta, yeah, they I, gotta I, just, I don't think it's that likely yeah i think there are certain parts of the formula that they're just gonna stick to and yeah i mean and forever like there have been male yeah. companions but forever there's there's always been a female companion that I, yep. you know, unless it's something again that I haven't seen in the show yet. I think there has always been at least one female companion with the doctor. Yeah. I, I think that part of the mythos is just one of those things that I, I would see the female doctor as being very, very unlikely. Um, I, that dynamic to me just seems like one of the bigger risks that they would consider and shy away from. There, it's just certain parts of the mythos that I feel like they just wouldn't touch because that's the formula and that's kind of how it's always been. And there are certain, aspects of it that can be changed around definitely but i think that's one of the ones that is kind of i don't want to say set in stone but very close to all right so any last thoughts before we move on nope no. cool <laughs> all right uh we will talk more about this obviously when the next doctor is inevitably announced possibly if things if any big news happens, and if neither of these things occur in time, when the 50th anniversary special and the Christmas special air in November and December, respectively. So stay tuned for that. For now, I'm going to kick things over to Chris, and we're going to talk about Dan Harmon's return to community. Okay, so over the weekend, um, I 
became aware of this, as many people did, through a series of tweets that Harmon was sending out. Uh, at first, I thought it was a very, very drunk practical dr- joke that was more than a little mean-spirited, considering just how many community fans really, really were hoping that his um, dismissal from the show was going to be turned around in some way. But I think it was uh, mid-Saturday that he confirmed that he was indeed returning to community, um, that a deal was in the process of being finalized, and I, I believe his comment was that uh, Joel McHale was to thank for this. Um, at, details have been kind of sparse other than this confirmation, but... Um, I mean, obviously, I'm excited, uh, and I want to hear what you guys have to say. Let's start with uh, Sam. Sam. Sure. Um, well, I think initially, I remember, I guess it was, what, a couple nights ago, Jordan was texting me about this. Um, after the after Harmon sent the initial tweet, I think Alan Sepinwall was like, oh, it's a joke. It's a joke, whatever. And because, you know, everyone knows that there have been these reports that he might come back, but I think everyone yeah. kind of took them with a huge grain of salt, rightfully. Um I think what's really interesting about this is the involvement in the cast in getting Harmon back. Because apparently, according to Seppenwall, again, um, he said that, I guess certainly Mikhail, but the cast was not happy with the scripts for the most part from last season. And I think that's really interesting that that they, or maybe just Mikhail, kind of canvas somebody to try to make Harmon or at least let them invite Harmon back to the show. I think it's really interesting that the cast would go to bat for him like that. If yeah, that is and the I, case. I, I mean, this is unprecedented, both in terms of, well, you've never seen a fired showrunner return to their show before. You've se- I've seen, uh, and I think Ball says this as well, you've seen showrunners return who left on amicable terms. Larry David came back to write the series finale of Seinfeld. David E. Kelly returned to Chicago Hope. Um, and, and I'm sure there are other examples that are not coming off the top of my head. Aaron Sorkin was in the audience for the last episode of The West Wing. <laughs> yes, but he did not return to write the show. And I mean, he was he was fired, at least in theory. Um, but yeah, he did not return to be involved in any way, shape, or form. Um, so this is basically unprecedented in that regard. And I also think that it's unprecedented in terms of the cast, or at least Joel McHale, uh, who's the only one I think we can confirm, um, went to bat for Harmon. Though, from tweets yeah. I've been reading, reading from the rest of the cast, it seems like everyone was sort of on board with this idea. Um, oh, I'm sure. I think I think it, this is the first time you've seen a cast pull this much weight to sort of counteract what the studio had done. I mean, the studio fired Dan Harmon. And, you know, one season, 13 episodes later, Harmon is being asked to come back um, because apparently the cast pulls enough weight to say, this isn't working, we're not happy, bring him back so the show can be good again. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's interesting on a number of levels. One, that the cast actually as you said, did go to bat to him for him. And two, that community, the show that was basically just clinging on to dear life for most of its existence is now in a position where the cast did feel like they were in a position where they could go to bat, make some demands and make some changes. And NBC needed the show, needed that cast enough to play ball with them. Well, I, I, think, I think I think the turnaround, well, mostly because of like just how far NBC has fallen, what dire straits they're in right now. But that the reversal of positions that that show of fortunes that that show has seen in the past two years even is astounding to me. Well, I think what may have happened here is, you know, besides talk about 
you know, how difficult Dan Harmon would, was to work with. They wanted the show to be uh, much broader than it was and appeal to a wider base of people. So I think maybe there was the initial thought that if we get rid of Dan Harmon and bring in guys who have, you know, just different showrunners to maybe try to get it to more people, that would be good and we'd get higher ratings. And And we should certainly remember that if Community was on any other network after its first season, it would be canceled. I mean, and after its second, and after and, its yeah. third, and yeah. after yeah. its fourth. Like it, every year, it would have been canceled pretty much yeah. anywhere else. Yeah. NBC's shittiness has actually saved Community more than, commu- <laughs> than NBC. Parks and Rec. I mean, several shows that we love have been yeah. saved by NBC just being in the shitter for the last exactly. half decade or so. And I think what happened was with this last season was they found the new guys they brought in to broaden. Uh, the audience for this show, they didn't. They didn't get it done. I mean, Community still had very, very low ratings this last season. The ratings and, in fact decreased. Yeah, and they alien. They might have alienated some of the loyal viewers who were yeah. who were attached to Dan Harmon. And I know, I know, just from my perspective, it was the worst season of Community to date, and it was a different show that was sometimes trying to copy Dan Harmon, and sometimes I don't know what it was doing. But, and the last episode was horrendous. But I, I think we talked about that at some point. I don't even um, remember the last episode, to be honest with you. As, as you shouldn't. It was a train wreck. I think, I, I feel comfortable saying it was maybe the worst episode the show's ever done. I think I viscerally blocked it out. Like, I literally have no memories of it. No, it was I won't remind good. you. But <laughs> I, I, I might have, like, done, like, a forcible blackout for my own self-preservation. Took a forget-me-now? Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I think... might be in a roofie circle, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should that, talk um, about that at some point. If, if NBC, if NBC was going to, you know, if they fired Dan Harmon because it was it was too uh, not broad enough, and then they found out that getting rid of him had the opposite effect, they might as well just bring him back, get the loyal fan base back, and just you know let it do the ratings that it does. It's it's never. I don't think Community will ever be a breakout hit. Um, it's not. You know, it's not going to be Seinfeld where if you just wait long enough. Well, they've Everyone waited long at this point, and it has not yeah. broken out. Exactly. So, you know, you know hopefully would, Dan still brings the magic to the show, and it'll be good again. I would say two things. First, I would say, clearly NBC's broadening has failed, which I couldn't be happier about, because the idea of them doing a bunch of broad, like, dumbed-down comedies made me sort of nauseous and upset. But, I mean... Yeah, especially, at, like, specifically uh, Go On, which was the broad version mm-hmm. of Community, the community that they always wanted, failed miserably. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you look at their efforts to broaden, Go On, The New Normal, Animal Practice, all of these shows don't exist anymore. They were all canceled. Um, and if you look at NBC's last big big comedy hit was The Office. And yeah. I, don't, I think The Office was a smarter comedy than what they're trying to do now. So I, I would like to think that NBC has, has sort of given up on the idea of broadening itself and realizing that they were losing viewers on an already not well-rated show when they chose to renew community. It seems to make sense to me to try to go back to what was even sort of slightly working in season three. Um, the other point I wanted to make is I know as a fan of community, I am incredibly excited and much more interested in season five of this show than I was before. In fact, uh, I write about the show for the website, uh, for those of you who don't read our website but listen to our podcast, which check out reviewname.com at some point, guys. We're all right over there. Um, it's what pays the bills for this podcast. Yeah. Bills are paid. 
But yes, um, you should check that out. Jo- Jordan, some men from the gas company keep calling. I mean, <laughs> I tell you. The electricity is being shut off. <laughs> if the electricity runs on gas, <laughs> idiot. We have, a, we have a really weird system here. Our electricity <laughs> runs on gas. All of our uh, our heating and cooling is done through, uh, I don't even know where I'm going with this. Utilities jokes, you get it. Um, anyway, I've written about every episode of the show so far, and as season four ended... I said, I'm done. You know, I will watch season five because I love this cast. And I think even at its worst, this cast can pull good things out of bad scripts. But I was not planning on writing about the show anymore because I spent a season saying this doesn't work for me. Didn't have much left to say. I can now say that I will be writing about Community again in season five because with Dan Harmon back, the show is, even if it is not as good as it used to be, the show is now interesting and I will have things to say and things to think about it now. Yeah. I, I, I'm tremendously, I'm tremendously excited. I can't think of a single community fan who wouldn't be tremendously excited about this. This I think is most, just good news all around. The most significant thing for me with this is I'm never going to have to, I mean, hopefully I'm never going to have to wonder how Dan Harmon would have ended the show. Cause you yeah. know, even if, even if the next season of community is the last, at least it'll be on Dan Harmon's terms. And I'm sure, you know, un- unless they like know ahead of time that they're going to be canceled, he'll probably make, an ending that can work as a series finale that I'll be okay with because that's, that's something that was really kind of stuck in the back of my mind watching all of last season. I'm like, they're going to end the show this way. Like this is not how it would happen. Um, that, that's an interesting point, And I will ask, we got to move on in a minute, but I will ask, um, crap. I forgot what I was going to ask. Uh, <laughs> great. We could move on. Yeah. I guess, I guess we can move on. Cause it, I, it literally just slipped away from me. I was really excited for that question. Jordan. <laughs> It was going to be a good one, too. It would have been a doozy. Does it have to do with ending the show? Um, I, I, uh, I, I, does it have to do with Jeff's inclusion? Because that was something I was going to bring oh, up. Oh, that, that yes. That does, that, thank you, Chris. You okay, because I have a theory. I, I totally, I think Jeff is going to become a professor at uh, Greendale. Yeah, that, 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 I thought that was what was going to happen in the, in the season four finale. But my question yeah. is a slightly broader. It's, okay. how do you think Dan Harmon will treat season four? Because a lot of things happened in season four, character-wise that he can either build off of or ignore. So, um, including Jeff's graduation. Dream. I've seen dream. people say, dream. you know, dream. stick with dream. it. I've seen people say it's all a dream. I, I have no idea. I'm sure he'll come up with something much more clever than yeah. I could. I want to say I, dream. I, I think... Abed dream. I, I don't know. I, I think there's... I think there's more ways to... I, I don't think Jeff's graduation was as big a beat to get around for Harmon. Are there, like than the reunion with the father. I think that's something that Harmon really wanted to handle himself. And that's the one that's kind of, kind of got hurt that he didn't, wasn't able to address in the way he wanted to address. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing. Also potentially Troy and Britta's relationship, how it's been handled. Um, yeah. I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of salted earth at this point. I mean, maybe Harmon could find a way to salvage that, but it, it just, I, I, I don't, it, it would take some, and I think Har- if anyone is up to the task, it's Harmon, but it's it's going to take some really great writing to get over the bad taste I have in my mouth from how that was executed in season four. I mean, I, I think the Troy Britta stuff is salvageable because I, I think it was mostly written around, so like you had them together and they didn't really ri- ever write them together, you know, they didn't have too many yeah. stories about that until their breakup, which was, I thought actually a be- one of the better episodes the show did. It just lacked all the buildup it needed to be emotionally effective uh, over the course of the season. So I sure. feel like you could salvage the Troy Britta stuff. Um, 
But I don't know that I want it to be salvaged now. Yeah, I feel like I feel like that was a story the show told. I I wish it had been told better, but I would be okay if Harmon yeah. never went back to that well. Um, and if he turned his eyes toward Jeff and Annie, which is another thing he may or may not touch. Yeah. Yeah, the um, Jeff and Annie was Annie. They screwed up Annie this season. Oh yeah. They screwed up Annie this season, but Annie's the character I think that's been screwed up the most often throughout the show's run. I feel like Dan Harmon often screws up Annie as well. Yeah, but this season it was just weird, weird fawning. Like they, I, they just didn't capture what was good about the Annie Jeff dynamic. I think they were just like, well, we'll just make them a couple. Like they'll be coupling, and it, it really fell flat for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. But uh, uh, okay, so uh, any last long live Dan Harmon. <laughs> Long live Dan Harmon. Indeed. Uh, do we do we know what the... Uh, I'm assuming it's a 13-episode order. Do we know yet? It is a 13-episode order for the moment, uh, and it is not okay. confirmed, though it is possible that it will be confirmed as the show's last. NBC okay. may order these episodes and say, these are the last you'll get. Let's not deal with renewal questions again. Just wrap it all up. Sure. Um, that wouldn't surprise me at all, because this is the show's fifth season. I mean, as much as the fans want it to go six seasons in a movie... Um, how about what about five seasons and a Netflix season and a movie? They do, you know, you can do that. That'd be great. Um, That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Honestly, if Dan Harmon comes that's, back for that's thirteen episodes and it's done, five seasons is longer than I ever would have expected the show to run. And Dan Harmon will be back in the saddle for thirteen episodes to wrap things up. I would almost rather the show get a thirteen episode order uh, and know it's the end. Then it get the 13 episode order, uh, have me hope it's going to be not the end, and then it get canceled after the, the next season. This is a show that, knowing that Harmon's back in charge, I would really like to have an end to it. So I will agree with that. That That's my ideal scenario. Yeah, I mean, I imagine Harmon writes, like Sam said, I imagine he writes the finale as if it could be a series finale, but I would rather him know that the end is coming. So I would rather yeah. us have either six seasons. Um, six seasons would be great, obviously. I don't think the show needs to end especially since Harmon had a year off to hopefully rejuvenate himself creatively. Um, yeah. But I would like, if season five is to be the last, I would like it to be known up front as opposed to NBC hemming and hawing over whether to renew it. Um, on that note, we should move on, and I'll kick things back to you, Sam, and we can talk about Veronica Mars. Sure. As you know, as you all know, the big Veronica Mars story lately has been their Kickstarter campaign to make a Veronica Mars movie. And they well surpassed their, I think it was $2 million goal. Yes. And they yeah. made over $5 million. Is that correct? Off the top of my yes. head. Yep. And, you know, because of this, I was so, I mean, I've always been interested in the show, um, you know, wanting to watch it. But the Kickstarter really kind of pushed, pushed my hand. And... um I finally buckled down and watched it and basically marathoned it with uh, my girlfriend, Ashley. And it was amazing, except for maybe season three, which we can talk about. But I think Jordan uh, ended up, he also recently watched uh, the series, and we know Chris is a longtime fan. Chris, did you watch it when it was first run? Uh, I watched uh, season three when it was first run, and I quickly caught up with the other first two after that. So right. season three was actually my fir- the first season I saw. Whoa, we're going to have to talk about that experience. Cause... Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I am <laughs> in the, basically the same boat as Sam. I didn't marathon it quite as quickly because I was in finals uh, when we all started this. But once the Kickstarter was announced and the movie was going to be made, I decided that a show that had long been one of my rainy day shows uh, was time to take it out of the uh, back shelf and check it out. 
So I have also, over the last few months, marathoned through all of Veronica Mars. So both Sam and I are new viewers. Chris, you're a longtime fan. Yes. Um, why don't we, well, I guess why don't we start uh, with you, Sam, and what you thought of the show? Sure. Um, I, what I really loved about Veronica Mars is um, just the, the, the take that they took on uh, noir and bringing that into the high school context. And it was still able, you know, some of the elements of the show were serialized. There was kind of a main mystery throughout the first second and they kind of fucked around with it in the third season, but not really. They had one main mystery as kind of the spine running through the season. And it was also um, episodic, you know, they'd kind of a mystery of a week. But I like that they brought in all these noir elements in a high school context, not necessarily in the same way as a show like uh, as uh, the movie Brick, which was basically was basically making a 40s noir and putting it into a high school context. This this felt like a high school show, a high school drama that has noir elements, which I thought was a really interesting take. And I love, you know, the core cast was fantastic really throughout the entire run even into the third season uh the problems i had with the third season mostly came from story structure and uh new characters they had and kind of the directions they went with some of their mysteries i didn't really like um and i found season three they go to college and the high school to college transition on television shows that are high school dramas don't seem to often work out super smoothly. And I think we can talk about it, Buffy the Vampire rough. Slayer. We can yeah. talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and that I think they kind of smoothed out that transition by kind of throwing away college on the show. Yeah, Buffy threw away college, but also Buffy did not smooth out that transition until season five. Um, yeah. Season four is, is uh, a rough one. And while I always, whenever I talk about Buffy, uh, I always have to say season four is never as bad as I, as I make it out to be when I'm watching it. Like there are a lot of really solid episodes in season four. As a whole, yeah. season four goes down as as uh, one of my least favorite of the show, if not my there least are, favorite. I think season six is really rough. But I, All not, right, we'll, we'll talk about Buffy on another podcast. <laughs> that's that's another podcast, guys. Um, I will defend season seven of Buffy, except for that's Kennedy. interesting. I, okay, all right. So we got to do a Buffy podcast. <laughs> I agree with you, Sam. I, I definitely agree with you, Sam. But let's 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 keep it focused on Veronica. We should Mars. do a Buffy podcast at some point, but for now, yes, Veronica Mars. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I, I agree with a lot of what you just said, Sam. I, I think they were really good at juggling a whole number of mysteries throughout the season. And I, I think that even, especially in the first two seasons, not only were they, they the mysteries of the week and the season-long mysteries, there would be certain other mysteries like that were maybe tied to the main mystery that would like span like three or four episodes mm-hmm. almost. So I think there was always just a lot of um, detective work to be done like throughout the series and just a lot of balls in the air that were always being addressed, always moving forward. And I thought the show did a really good job of keeping all those things going and keeping you guessing throughout and really having just a lot of like really meaty um, noir elements to dig your teeth into. So even when the show was like a very high school soap opera, um, even and and I will defend that because I think the show did it very very well. I I will I I think Veronica Mars showed that there is actual merit to that type of show to that like like high school melodrama. Yeah, it, um, it never soap felt opera too elements. melodramatic yeah. to me, even when Exa- it was being melodramatic. Yeah, and and so but it was like 
so like as you know uh three guys in their 20s like it was a show that was on the cw that i had no shame in watching no shame in saying that i'm a huge very devoted fan of because it's a very smart show and it's a show that knows it's very unique identity and it knows how to jump between the two worlds it has its feet planted into very very well yeah and i mean as as guys in their mid-20s i'll say obviously i especially am not a bastion of masculinity in terms of not shipping on other shows but I was incredibly invested in the Logan Veronica will they won't they um, throughout the series. Oh my god, yes! Like, I, I like won't far even... more than I was yeah. ever prepared to be while I was <laughs> starting to watch the show. I became very yeah. invested in that relationship, so it was handled very well. And I think Sam, you you've said that the exact thing you said before, and I think it's exactly dead on. This is a show that took the noir elements um, and did something different. Brick, like you said, is basically a forty style noir in a mo- set in a modern high school. Veronica Mars is a very modern noir. Um, it takes a lot of the elements and a lot of the archetypes of noir, but it gives them a modern high school spin. And I, and just like you said, Chris, I think it manages to be both a noir drama and a high school drama, and often a very funny show. Um, one of the things that, that I think maybe has been touched on but not really highlighted yet that I wanted to highlight is the way this show builds the world. Um, we talk a lot about how many of our favorite shows are great at world building, and I think that's especially true of any noir show that I'm going to consider great. The other example that comes immediately to mind is Justified, which is currently on FX. Uh, both of these shows are great at building the world, at slowly developing not just the characters in the core cast, but characters that they can continually run into and subcultures that continue to exist. Uh, Veronica Mars created uh, gangs and political uh, cadres and families and all of these things seem to exist, and all of these uh, plates kept spinning even when they weren't the focus of the show. Um, you had things, uh, the biggest example I can think of, and I guess this is sort of, it's not really a spoiler, but it's a little detail uh, about the show. The Kane family, for example, who are off stage for the entirety of season three, uh, popping pop back up in the in the sh- what became the show's series finale, and it feels like you haven't missed a beat, and that family has continued to exist and grow and develop in interesting ways. Uh, before its return and i think the show does that with literally dozens of characters and various different groups you have you know the pchers the fitzpatricks um uh you have various families the canes the eccles the capablancas and all of these things are always developing even when they are not the center of the show and that leads to a situation where you can have suspects continue to pop up when veronica's investigating cases and alliances shift and change over time and it gives the show a lot to ground itself in, even when it's doing a case of the week, in ways that I think paid huge dividends in the show's second season, which was my favorite. I think what's interesting and kind of speaks to Jordan's point is, I think in a lot of high school shows, you'll like you'll the, the show will focus on the kids who are the main focus. But what this show always did was the adults were always important to the show. Every every one of the kid characters, every one of the high schoolers, all of their parents were important. At some point, even the or ones another. who were one-off characters usually yeah. had either like a good relationship or a bad relationship with their parents, or the parents came up in a way that they often don't on high school shows. That's a great point, Sam. the The whole community of Neptune, and I think this is exactly what you're trying to say, felt very well formed to me. It it just seemed like such a believable environment, and the lore. The show was very conscious of its own lore and how all the wheels turned together and how all the cogs worked, and it always just um, in the back of your mind you could kind of like have those questions of oh how is this going to affect this and very often the show would bring that up and it always kept all these 
characters as a part of the series and continuing to develop and coming back into play. Nothing was really discarded in Veronica Mars, and I really like that a lot about it. What really impressed me about that is the way that the show continued to build and integrate various more archetypes. And it really, I mean, it did trade in a lot of the, the big archetypes of the show and yet fit them into the world. Um, I mean, you obviously had the, the rich triumphing over the poor. You had a lot of the detective and police procedural elements of it. You had uh, the mayor and the political er- arena coming in. So a lot of these yep. a lot of these things you see in noir came up, but they felt fully integrated in ways. I think an even slightly lesser version of this show uh, would have traded in those archetypes and made them feel archetypal. You know, made them feel like, oh, this is a noir show, so we're going to do a story about political corruption. Uh, whereas Neptune felt like a real world that just happens to have all of these various noir elements. Even when Veronica started writing for the newspaper, um, which was sort of a thing in high school, I think sort of also, also sort of a thing in college, but whenever the show wanted to go to a newspaper story and do the journalism noir type of thing, it was able to pull that off, and it all felt like one show, and it, none of it felt like they were just shoehorning in another noir trope. Yeah. Agreed. I gotta say, um, I don't, we haven't really, I want to mention that really my favorite my favorite element of the show was the relationship between um, Kristen Bell and Enrico Colantoni. Even yes. though, like, the major ship yes. in the show is Logan and Veronica, those two are the heart of the show. And, you know, obviously, Veronica's greatest confidant is her father. But the fact that it's personally and professionally the same person, it makes it a much more complicated and, I think, satisfying relationship to some degree. And the show did take efforts to complicate it, uh, you know. It was and and did so very well. I it never the complications they threw into that relationship never felt forced to me, and it always was this wonderfully complex dynamic. Especially when they like there there were multiple scenes, especially in season one, would where both knew that the other one were lying blatantly to their face, but they just kind of went about doing it. Like those were just heartbreaking scenes. Uh, yeah. Especially because of just like how wonderful that that relationship was portrayed, like how important that relationship was to the core of the show, and, and, and that, those were some of my favorite moments of the entire series. Yeah, the show figured out how to try that bond, but also never, never really broke it. Even even when yeah. it seemed to faint in the direction of oh, Veronica's so mad at her dad, or her dad's so mad at Veronica, they're not they're like their relationship will be broken for a while. It never did one of those um, like they are done arcs that I was worried it might do at some point. It always said like they are having problems, but they're a father and daughter and they're like the most important people in the world to each other. So like, yes, they're angry, but they're working it out. Um, it also had, oh, so many great scenes of the two of them just getting along well. And, uh, well, their back and forth was always great. The banter was phenomenal between them. The running gag, Chris, you would peek me to this before I got on the show, but the running gag of Veronica wanting a pony, like, That joke will make me laugh every time. Every time Veronica asks for a pony. Yeah, and there's just there were there was all sorts of depth and layers to this relationship. You had the banter. You had him as her professional mentor, him as her father. uh, The things that he often had to find out about her and she about him that they would not have otherwise and didn't necessarily want to know about each other. Um, The fact that Veronica's mother, uh, who was a character who never really worked for me, was mostly absent from the series. You know, I, I think the mother was like a rare misfire for this show in that, like, I, I honestly think that they got into a situation where they didn't really know what to do with her. That it was just... Well, I think they wanted to address it somehow. Yeah. I mean, I, I think she was important to the first season in terms of the circumstances of Veronica's relationship to the Kane family. 
But when they tried to bring her back into the series, it just didn't work. There was just no place for her, so they had to kind of write her out entirely for the rest of the show. Which I was glad because but that makes yeah, sense. Though. I was. I too. mean, that, I think the show it, it was better. Does, for that. It does, but like her coming back and then leaving again always kind of felt like a weird non like it like it it always seemed just like a character that they um they had regretted bringing back yeah like they just had to address and like send off in some way but didn't really have a plan for like that was one of the few characters that i felt like there really wasn't a clear idea of where this character was going yeah i would say the show is great oh go ahead sam i hate to do it again but so much of this show reminds me of buffy and it it kind of i mean i think veronica mars i mean they use the mother more but you know on buffy there was this whole there was this whole father thing that was just kind of looming over the series and they kind of bring him on and then take him away. And that was kind of it. And I was like, did we really need this? Um, um, yeah. I mean, I guess it might've served the episode, but it wasn't, I feel like Buffy's father would be more present if it was real life than it was. And the show, I don't think wanted to deal with that, which is fine. And I think eventually Veronica Mars realized that they didn't want to deal with Veronica's mom. And, and Veronica wasn't so concerned with, tracking yeah. the mother down and making it a part of the show again, which is I, fine. I think it, so, it worked yeah. out fine for both series, but I think it's just an, a, the single, I mean, so many things, similarities between these two shows, the, the single parent with the parent who runs out on them. Um, just so much, about, so much about Veronica Mars. I feel like kind of took the torch from Buffy. I mean, I guess Buffy ended right before, um, yeah. Veronica yeah, Mars started. Also, I mean, you also well, see a lot of, Buffy alum, including Joss Whedon himself, on Veronica Mars. I think it's very clearly the spiritual successor. Well, I think yeah, Joss exactly, Whedon was a big fan. Yeah. Oh no, he he will openly admit that he is a huge fan of the show, and that's how it came apart. Like like there was a t- period in time where he would actively promote the show as it being like his favorite show he was watching, and um, I, very much in the way that Buffy was the fusion of high school drama and high school drama. This was just the next successor, only it was just more rooted in the real world. And, yeah, I mean, um, Buffy fused horror and high school yeah. uh, in the way that Veronica Mars fused noir in high school. Yeah, but both are very the same. They're, they're very, like, densely packed with pop culture references, um, like, strong female protagonists, the single parent thing. Like, yeah, the, the comparisons are endless, but I, I, I think they, it, they they're, there's no, I don't think Veronica Mars is derivative of Buffy in any way. I just think it's, as you said, it's very much a spiritual successor and very much, like, I think, if you enjoyed Buffy or if you enjoyed Veronica Mars, you will definitely enjoy the other one. I don't think. Yeah, I, I, think I would imagine hard that Rob Thomas like is developing them. Veronica Mars. Yeah. Buffy was an influence of his, but it never oh, feels totally. like he's ripping off the yeah. show. No. Yeah. Um, no, it's its own show, and it, it has a. It has. They have very very similar sensibilities. You know, people yeah. people who like Star Wars and The Big Lebowski will like both of these shows. Um, I would say one more thing about the mother before we move on to any other sure. stuff we want to discuss, which is. I felt like the show was very good at every time a mystery was introduced, uh, unlike a lot of shows that throw a lot of mysteries at viewers, I felt like the resolution was also there. And it never felt like they were they were writing around or like severely changing things in ways that didn't work. Uh, the one exception being, I think the show wrote Veronica's mother out in the uh, in its first episode as a like, this is a mis- this is part of the larger mystery. And I feel like that might have been the one piece that didn't necessarily fit the way that they expected it to because you knew because she had been written out in the pilot like veronica's mom could have been dead and the show would have been better for it i think but you knew because veronica's mom was there and written out that she had to return at some points and i think they did some interesting things like she had information that became very important 
to the I think, show. I think it was important to to both Veronica and Keith's character that the, sh- the mother wasn't dead and that she did like run out on them and was kind of a degenerate. Because both yeah. of them have this feeling of abandonment and that they only have each other. Okay, dead is maybe not the right point, but she could have been. She could have run out on them before the show started. How about that? Like she could have never been a character on the show, with the exception of I think there is. I, I would say there's one very important thing that the mother gives to the series, uh, which I guess we could mention because it's a spoiler for a ten year old show. The the uncertainty of Veronica's parentage. Yeah, I think age? I think yeah. like do we need a, do we need a spoiler? Uh, well, we don't need to spoil it. We can just—it's a major like, plot point of the first season. So. Yeah, yeah. We can just say that one, like that one piece of information, needed to come from her. I think uh, it could have come from somewhere else. And if we only had her back for one episode instead of the like three or four, I think she's back for. I would have liked that better. She didn't really work for me, but the show learned that and got rid of her. And it it, it, it did it well enough. Like I, I think, I think she was sort of a necessary um, re. I, I think you had to bring her in for a little while. I, I don't think she really worked within the elements of the show. Every time she was there, it just sort of felt like this unnatural intruder, which I think was really good to the show because, it, like, her entire purpose in the show was upending the status quo. So, but um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I think the show dealt with her fine. Like, I, like she's such a small footnote to the show that I don't really think we need to continue. Yeah, we can, we can definitely yeah. move on. <laughs> one, one thing I would like to discuss that kind of borders into spoilery territory, but not majorly, so at your own discretion, continue. Um, I would like to ask, do you guys think that the Veronica-Logan Logan pairing was always planned from the start, or do you think that was something that was just born out of the incredible chemistry that these two had, like every time that they were in a scene together? Uh, Sam? Sure, I'll start first. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure there is a definitive answer to this, because Rob Thomas probably knows how he originally thought of this. Uh, I personally don't think it was originally designed that way, much in the same way that someone like Dick Casablancas wasn't really a character on the show. I I think maybe Dick literally had one line in the first season of Veronica Mars and then became a pivotal character, I think, to the series. So I wouldn't be surprised if if Rob Thomas found... uh, Logan and Veronica, that their characters worked really well together and were way more interesting than the Duncan-Veronica thing. And he was just like, alright, we're gonna make this a thing. Let's go season two, and season three, and the movie. Yeah. And I, well, I, I would say I, I that it developed over the course of the first season as well. I don't think it was originally a thing because I'm not sure, and I, I imagine that there were a lot of ideas about Logan from the beginning, otherwise I don't think he would have been in the cast, because in the very few, first few episodes of the show, Logan plays sort of a one-note character. Uh, and you always know there's got to be more there because, you know, he's in the cast. Uh, yeah. So I imagine there was always going to be more depth to Logan. Uh, but I don't think that he was necessarily going to be a love interest of Veronica's at the beginning. Uh, and as depth was added to him, he became more interesting. And clearly, uh, Jason Doring and Kristen Bell had amazing chemistry. And... I imagine once the show figured that out, Rob Thomas was like, "All right, yeah, we this has got to be a, like a key element of the show going forward." Um, well, early, yeah. early on, I really hated Logan, not just because I was supposed to hate him, which you were, because Logan was at times insanely evil, mainly Ooh, like, yeah, bum like the, fighting the, and the stuff. The bum fighting episode, like, was like in, in that moment because, like, again, I'd started with season three. Like my thought there was like, how are they going to turn this around? Like I was exactly, like, and I think it, when I saw this, it yeah. was a slow build, and they, I, yeah, they eventually figured it out. 
But I didn't like Logan for a long time, just in terms of his character development, because I, it was basically like evil. And it was like, oh, poor, poor rich boy is like, has abusive parents and now he's evil. And I thought they were yeah. going to go down that, down that path. And, you know, I mean, on some level they obviously did, because that's kind of what Logan is, but, but they were able to do it in a much more interesting way than I think it was initially well, uh, shown. I think over the course of the first and the second season, it wasn't all in the first season, this show got really good at developing its characters uh, to make them much more three-dimensional and much more fully realized. I think like even initially once they start to develop Logan and try to make him sympathetic, he feels like, oh, like I should feel sorry for him because he's from an abusive family and he's kind of been neglected, blah, blah, blah. Like, and these are all things like that, of course I feel sorry for the character for this. But they feel almost emotionally manipulative. Like, you're forcing me to feel sorry for a character I don't particularly like based on things that you have invented in his past. And it feels a little too pat and neat. Sort of uh, how we've talked, I think, in the past about Don Draper's whorehouse past feeling a little bit too neat for a lot of his issues. Um, but over the latter half of season one and into season two, you started to get more and more of Logan. He started to, fe- he started to feel more realistic and it started to gr- yeah. feel more like I understood where he came from. I understand how he is the way he is. And I understand how... It's not as simple as that initial brush feels like. Uh, season. The reason that I said into season two, I think Wallace uh, was a character who was central to the cast from the beginning, but never really felt like a fully realized character to me until maybe partway through season two. I feel like this is a good time to bring up season three, because season three might as well have killed Wallace. Yeah, season three. Well, season three is problematic, and I think I think I liked it less than it's you, a lot Chris. of levels. Um, just from the no, brief. I, I, I mean, I, I really didn't like season three. Okay, like, so are we I all? Don't think, I don't think anyone likes season three. Yeah, yeah. Season I, three was I, a there is, bad there's season. a lot of bad elements there, like the the continuous need to try and drive um, unnecessary wedges between Veronica and Logan, um, the sidelining of Weevil with literally having him like just drift through the show with no real purpose. Wallace's role being kind of overtaken well, by Piz, a character who had even less personality than Duncan, and that's hard to do. It's hard to create a character that was Piz blind was useless. Duncan. Piz was, I think, I, I talked about this with Jordan. Piz was Poochie, basically. He's like he's Duncan with a with a haircut. Yeah, he's and, like he's Duncan <laughs> with like one character trait, which is like he likes yeah. radio. No, and the whole point, I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry for doing this again, but. But Piz was put in there to be Riley. He yeah, was to he's be. Riley. Yeah. He was yeah, to be he was the. the not, he was to be the not Logan character. Yeah. Yep. That that would eventually vie for Veronica's heart, and you go like, well, I mean, Piz. You know, Piz is a good guy. There's like nothing wrong with Piz, but right. he's useless well, in just yeah. so there many ways. There is something wrong with Piz, not as a person. There's something wrong with him as a character yeah. because yes. you can write a good guy who is not bland as toast. This show just never really figured out how to do it, except keep which Mars. was. I, I I would argue that I liked Wallace a lot throughout the show. Like, I like yeah, Wallace I think too, the show but he had, wasn't I think used the show well had a problem. No, he was definitely not used well in three. But like, he was definitely a good guy who that I think they found easy, sure. good things to do. That's with, true, especially, especially in, season, in two. season two. Yeah, yeah. Wallace was used well, and Keith was used well, so it was clear the show could write a good guy. Just yeah. when they tried to give Veronica a good guy romantic interest, you had Duncan and Piz, both of whom just <laughs> didn't work. Also, yeah. his name is Piz. How did anyone think that was okay? Well, Piznarski was the name <laughs> of the director of the pilot, I found out today. Still. Still, yeah. It doesn't salvage it for me. No, like, it was it was a terrible name, um, yeah. terrible character decision. We, Chris, I, I mentioned this to you with, like, 
first excitement and then incredible frustration. Like, the show figured out something to do with Weevil. They, for one episode, they had Weevil working with Keith, and it was brilliant. I was like, this is exactly what should happen. Uh, Weevil should get into the private eye game, work with Keith, and, you know, that's a great direction for this character. I think they could have gone another way and had Weevil um, get re-involved with the PCHers and sort of become more of an adversary to Veronica, as we I think you mentioned to me. Like, there are things they could have done with Weevil instead of, like, he's a janitor now! Well, you know what? Yeah. All, you I, know I what think... Weevil... Weevil was fucking Xander. I mean, yeah. Again, he became Xander, but he wasn't that to begin with. Like, Weevil no, 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 was no, no, no. I'm saying one of the in, most complex yeah. and most interesting characters in the show. I, I really think that season three was just really this show drowning. Like, this was this show clawing to stay afloat, treading water as best as it could because they knew the right wing was on the wall. They had got the stay of execution, and they were doing everything they could to maybe change up what they thought was wrong with the show. And what happened was is they ended up throwing out all the elements that were really great about the show. And with Weevil specifically, I I almost want to think that maybe this season was just about like taking Weevil down to his lowest point before putting him back on that road to becoming a more hardened criminal. And you as do see I mentioned to you at some point. Near the end of the season. Yeah. Yeah. But like I honestly would have loved the idea of like him and Keith working together and like him being like Keith's new partner as Veronica is now like a a fully bonded private eye in her own right. I, I think that would have been a perfectly wonderful relationship for the show to kind of develop with Keith sort of like having this sort of like another surrogate, like father relationship with this guy who he had basically been arresting since he was in grade school. And Keith, like, I you think could that always would have been tell great. when they put those characters together, Keith knew Weevil was trouble, but also knew he wasn't necessarily a bad guy. And they had an interesting yeah. dynamic to them. They really did. Um, and, uh, but I do want to, I, I always that. love how Weevil would call Keith Sheriff. That was just, just such a nice little touch to the series. And uh, like. Keith called Weevil Eli, which I always liked. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> My name is Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, but I, do, I, I thought do you were going to say Beaver. I mean, Cassidy. Weevil and, Weevil and Veronica have one of the most complex and, and rewarding relationships in the show. In that the show, it originally seemed to me like, okay, like, in the first few episodes of season one, Veronica is, you know, Weevil is being put in Veronica's corner and, like, he's the bad boy and he's, you know, he's got a troubled past but he's gonna help Veronica out and he's gonna be that guy. But no, like, the show continually said, like, in this episode Weevil is sort of an antagonist to Veronica. He's working against her interests and maybe even he's the bad guy. Uh, in, and next time they, they were paired, like, maybe they were on the same side of the issue and maybe they were friends. Um, and it, you know, they always sort of knew that about each other, that, like, they had respect for each other and they liked each other, but they were not always on the same side of things. And I thought that was a, a fascinating and rewarding dynamic throughout the show's first two seasons. And really, I think one of the better handled relationships throughout the history, I mean, like, most of them were just great. Like, I, I think and Enrico and, uh, well, Veronica and her dad, Keith, were always handled well. I think Veronica and Eli, they always knew what they were doing with that relationship, even maybe when they didn't know what they were doing with Eli himself. Um... And, like, Logan, I think they kind of went off the rails with in the third season. Uh, yeah, I was going to bring that exact um, thing up next. And Wallace, I think they sort of kind of lost direction with in the third season. But I think Keith and Eli and Veronica, I mean, Keith and Veronica and Weevil and Veronica, they always had a very good handle on. And, like, again, like, as you said, that's a very complex relationship these two had. Like, like basically just mutually understanding antagonists who occasionally had each other's back and occasionally were working directly against each other. And that could just change week to week, depending on the interest. But I think when the chips really came to, to fall down, like these two actually really did care about each other. 
and like like as like the last episode showed like like something that was very personal to Veronica a situation that like affected Veronica Weevil comes to Weevil's her just with corner. like nothing yeah exactly and th- this is one like usually it was sort of like a tit for tat sort of thing it was a mutually beneficial relationship something personal to the her like he had her back no questions asked uh and the the relationship this most resembles to me and TV and they are very different relationships but I think they serve a similar purpose and maybe had to show how to fourth season would have served an even more similar purpose is the uh Boyd and Raylan relationship unjustified, which is um, adversaries. The uh, they're, they're, this is not a spoiler. It's you know adversaries that have history together, and I think Boyd and Raylan are more explicitly adversaries. But yeah. there's always like they sometimes end up working together, and there's always a lot of history between them. So that was similar to me, but I also think that there's there's much more emotional investment on both sides, uh, and much more, much closer to friendship in the uh, Weevil and Veronica relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And always very well handled. And I, I really regret a lot of what was done with season three. Like, I, I mean, Harmon, I think, uh, wow. <laughs> well, we were talking about him earlier. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, Rob Thomas. Yeah, Rob Thomas will like admit that he was like really trying to do something different with season three, where he was trying to... Um, issue the season-long mysteries to make the show a little bit more accessible so that's why he had the three kind of broken up mysteries and also like he really wanted to like he he admitted that he was really actively trying to involve the quote-unquote good characters more in the season-long mysteries so they weren't just like these resources for veronica and they were more like actively involved in the super story so he tried to create a mystery that characters like wallace and piz and mac could be more involved in and that didn't work but it didn't really work, yeah. Um, um, several things so it didn't was... work. First of all, the idea that, that he was trying to change things up sucked for me um, because season two was my favorite. And then it was like, you like that, huh? Here's everything different. Yeah. Well, they had, like, um, it was a half-baked mystery. The whole rape thing was, I think, terribly handled story-wise and character-wise. Um, yeah, that was... The, the, the sideline players in that mystery, namely, like, the feminists mm-hmm. who are weirdly victim-blaming, um, they're, like, slut-shaming feminists who I don't really understand. Um, and and then and then they're like, okay, well, that mystery is kind of wrapped up. Let's just do another one. I don't know. It, it, I, I mean, I guess... It didn't work for me at all. Um, it, it didn't work for me either, and I guess kudos for trying something different, but at the same time... You know, you had a good thing going. Well, I'll say I'll say two things here. The feminists actually are emblematic of one thing I want to discuss about season three, which is where seasons one and two did such a great job at world building. I felt like season three floundered all over the place, and most of the world building it did didn't stick with me. The feminists were characters that the show kept going back to, and they didn't. First of all, they didn't feel like real feminists to me. They felt like characters who were just like antagonists to Virginia, uh, Virginia, um, Veronica. Huh, Virginia. They felt they felt Virginia like, Mars. They felt like characters. <laughs> That, um, you know, like, I didn't, I didn't feel like their views were even consistent, except that they were always opposed to whatever Veronica was doing. Um, and their view, like, they were far too militant. And I know, like, there are militant feminists out there who probably see themselves in these characters and are like, yeah, but to me, they were far, <laughs> they were far too militant to be realistic No, but you feminists. know what? You know what, though? I, I don't think, like, you know, I think real feminists, you know, I remember there's a scene where one of them is driving Veronica back from the party because she's driving, like, the... Oh, yeah, like the safe ride home thing, and she's chastising Veronica for getting drunk and inviting 
sexual assault on herself, which is not something any feminist would agree with. You know, the impetus is not on the girl to not get drunk. Right. It's on I the mean, man to not can... rape. That, but yeah. that's another thing that didn't work is a lot of the way that the show handled the rapes and rape in general was problematic to me. But I think the feminists never worked as characters because they didn't feel like fully formed characters. Well, they, they were very like, two-dimensional. Yeah, and they didn't feel like their views even were consistent or made sense. Their views shifted as the story needed them to. Um, and for a... Yeah, well, I'll, that's all I'll say about that. But I think that's true of almost every new character. You know, every area of the college that they tried to build up felt sort of the same way. Um, with the exception of... I'll tread... So, if you haven't seen season three of the show, skip like 30 seconds ahead because I will tread briefly into spoiler territory and then run right back out. But... With the exception of Dean O'Dell, who was my favorite character and someone who I think worked within the show's world and worked within the, sh- the new season and was built up. And I was like, I like this character. This is someone from the world I can see inhabiting it. And then they killed him and that became the second mystery. And I was like, no, like, that's the one new thing that's working. Yeah. Um, um, spoilers over. <laughs> they, they, they had a lot of situations. Like, season three is just a mess because, again, like I, I think they were really just treading water and that they were throwing out everything trying to change up everything just desperate anything anything to change the formula like that that was a show that they really loved the chemistry between the characters and so they often found when the the formula of the show itself wasn't working that's what they tried to change up and i'm not sure if you guys are aware of what was going to be arguably season four arguably a spinoff show which was veronica mars fbi yeah well i've seen online you can see the the kind yeah. of mini pilot that they put together yeah. for that. They want they wanted to preserve these characters so much that they were willing to do anything to try and like just change up the formula, change up like the surroundings, like ma- try things out, like see if this works. This works. Like maybe the the fans, the mysteries are too complicated. Let's let's make them shorter. And it just never was what this show needed. The show knew what it was doing. The problem with the show was not the fact that the show was doing something wrong. The problem with the show was just people weren't watching it. That was the issue. And the, you know, there's nothing sadder to me than a show changing everything about itself to to get viewers because a it you know <laughs> hey community loses, right it loses the respect of the fans like myself in the process and usually it doesn't work because usually you don't find people going like oh like this low rated show that I haven't watched before is changing everything I'll watch. Like, yeah. usually people don't don't pick up a show they haven't been watching because everything about it is changing. Usually yeah. that signals there's trouble. And, you know, it would... Because the show had enough buzz about it at that point. You you could have had just a more... Um, I mean, because like, I, I did like season two a lot, but I think the, 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 the overarching mystery for the season was a little convoluted. You could have gone back to a more straightforward mystery a la season one for season three if you were trying to get new fans on board and i would have been fine with that i think that would have been a better solution a more happy medium than what we got which was season three which is really just a mess from a whole number of perspectives yeah the last thing i want to touch on because i don't i feel like we're harping too much but i will just throw out there that logan and veronica were completely screwed up by season three in that logan's like I'm a bad boy and I'm troubled thing ended up just, I felt like they kept hitting the same note over and over and over again to the point that I wasn't even rooting for Logan and Veronica anymore. Yeah. The show tried to drive a lot of wedges between them in that season. And And it worked. um, (laughs) Yeah, it it did to a point where, I mean, it, it was one of those things where it's like the show gets their two main romantic interests together and then doesn't know what to do with them. So immediately has to find some way to break them up so you can have that happen all over again. And they even did that in season one. 
which was very frustrating to me, but handled much better than season three. Yeah, what sucks so, to me is, like, well, what, I felt like Ver- Logan and Veronica worked together when they were together. I didn't feel like the show was floundering when they were together. It just seemed like yeah. the show felt like it was. Yeah. And Sam, what were you saying? I, I just, I hate it when, and it's it's not just Veronica Mars, but in anything where there's a will-they-won't-they they, and they need to kind of wedge them apart again. Yeah. I, I hate just, like, kind of seeing that train coming where it's going to be like, up oh, here comes a stupid misunderstanding, you know, or like someone's going to just say something stupid by accident. Yeah. It's, and, and it did like, it did not feel like that in seasons one and two. They're, they're coupling their breakup and they're recoupling, et cetera, et cetera. Always felt real in season one and two and it felt story driven. Season three, it felt like we, we need to do that sort of thing again. So let's break them up. And Logan ended up being a character that I was less invested in because they kept making him do stupid things and never learning from his mistakes. Yeah. Um, especially in season, it just didn't really feel organic to me in season three either. It's like, like a lot of the mistakes he was making were just born of this idea of we need Logan to fuck up a lot. Right. So that Veronica has to break up with him. And I mean, Jason um, Doring played the hell out of what he was given, but at a certain point it was just like, yeah. Logan screws up, gives Veronica puppy dog eyes and is like, Veronica, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't mean to do this. I screwed up. And she's like, I can't forgive you this time. Yeah. And, you know, it, it just worked so much better in season two. Like, I liked Logan off the rails in season two where he's, um, I, I mean, he, he just felt so directionless in season three. And I believed, I believed Logan going off the rails the way he did in season two. Yeah. Like, I, it didn't feel like they were making him more of a bad boy again so he and Veronica couldn't be together. It felt like he was a bad boy who was, you know, involved in these things because he needed to be. And yeah, like he was on trial for murder. His dad had killed his girlfriend. Like his mom was dead. Like <laughs> no it was, spoilers. It was... <laughs> Just kidding. Whoops. <laughs> it's okay. We're 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 beyond the pale. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, and we should really wrap up um, because we still have well, we got to talk Roger. about the last thing I was going to say. Yeah. The last question I was going to give after talking about season three. At the end of season three, it feels very much like, at least to me, it felt like maybe they were kind of figuring out what they were going to do going forward especially given kind of the Keith Sheriff storyline and that, you know, there was like a real cliffhanger for the next season. What do you guys think about the movie? I mean, I guess they're not going to be able to address what happens at the end of season three, since we know that it's kind of going to be a big flash forward kind of to yeah. present day. And I think Veronica is going to be in the FBI, which is kind of cool to me. But um, what do you think about, well, what do you think about the movie? Are you, you know, obviously we're all excited for it, but, are there concerns about the movie that this is, I guess, seven years later and what Veronica and Logan are going to see each other for the first time? I have concerns, I, but not, not large ones. <laughs> yeah, me either. I, I, I think there's always concerns with something like this, but this is uh, a cast who really loves the material that they were given so much that they've stayed invested this entire time. I mean, you, you saw the video that they put out for the Kickstarter. This is a cast that really actively wants to get back to work on this show this is a creator who never gave up the dream of maybe having a shot to really end this thing the way he wanted to so i i do like there are always concerns when something like this happens but i'm more excited than concerned much more excited i would say the the biggest concern that i have is just length because i feel like one of the things that i like i said one of the things i love about the show is the world building and the world will have changed and we may not have time to delve into that and build it in the movie well, maybe they're going to just rely on the world that's been built throughout the series, which I think would be funny. I've, the rumor I've heard is that the movie centers around the Neptune High 10-year reunion. 
Which would make sense. That would I make mean, sense. You, yeah. That's a good idea. Uh, but I, I just, I, I fear that we'll end up with two hours of like, this is what this character's up to in Revolu- uh, and uh, closing off their plotline. Like, I, that's the only worry I have. And I imagine there will be some of that, but I also think Rob Thomas has had time to think about this and knows what he wants to do. I trust him, I trust this cast, and I trust the movie will be good. Yeah. Um, Sam? Long live Rob Thomas. <laughs> Indeed. I'm just looking forward to hearing how much swearing is going to be in this thing. Because you know it's going to be a ton if you watch Party Down. And I'm, I feel like... I, I've, I've never watched a show before where, I've, where I can like see the characters. Like, these are characters that should be swearing up and down the entire series. And I think Rob Thomas does a good job of getting in a lot of like really disgusting innuendo. I can't wait for Veronica to say fuck. I mean, I imagine the movie will be PG thirteen. Yeah, um, I mean, it. I've seen, I've seen Rob Thomas on his Twitter posts, uh, random pages from the script, and I've seen a fuck. So I guess you get one of those in a PG thirteen. Yeah, you so can usually we'll get away with two. I think maybe even three fucks it, in a PG thirteen. It's a first draft, you know. There could be more fucks, less fucks. Yeah. <laughs> well, we will uh, report back once the movie is released on how many fucks are in it. Because that's something we care about here. Uh, with that, we really do have to move on because we still have to talk about Tiny Furniture. And Chris, it was your movie. I'm going to kick over to you and we'll sort of do a, a briefer than we might expect, but uh, we'll get through this. Can I, can I just remark what a content-packed show this is? Man, what a, what a bang for your buck yeah, you guys are getting. For your, for your free podcast, you guys are getting a whole lot of show this week. Yeah, we may we have watched just... Tiny Furniture, but we just gave you large podcast. Oh, and now everyone turned it off. <laughs> I'm going to go walk into a river now. <laughs> Putting stones in your pockets throughout the segments. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, so we, this was the first time we'd all watch it? I yeah. Think. Yes. That's, that's the beauty of Movie Club. Always okay. Um, yeah, so just very briefly, my impressions of it is I liked it. I enjoyed it. I did not like it as much as I enjoyed Girls. I think it serves, the way I look at it is it was very much a good first draft of what the very fully formed to me girls came to be and it was more interesting to me to see uh lena dunham's emerging voice and some of the ideas that she was toying around with which later became um much more well-shaped when girl when they were used in girls than it was as its own work as a standalone movie i i i really viewed this in a lot of ways, as basically being the prologue to girls. And that's at least how I kind of interpret it. I'm anxious to hear what you guys thought of it. Sam? Well, what I really loved about... I, I, I gotta say, I like this movie a lot more than I thought I was going to like it. Um, I just, for some reason, I just really liked kind of hanging out in this world, and there, were, there, weren't, there wasn't really a story at all um, going through, and it's just kind of Lena Dunham's character, Aurora kind of meandering through, you know, postgraduate malaise, which is kind of not, it's, you know, it's certainly not too far off from girls. But where I think girls is kind of about friendship and dealing dealing with the life when you're trying to figure out who you are, I was really most interested in the family element of this and how Lena Dunham had cast her real mother and sister in the movie. And my favorite scenes were the scenes between the family members because it just, it felt, felt really real. And I felt kind of cozy kind of being in that world 
And I think Lena Dunham did a great job with their interactions because it, it didn't fe- it didn't feel like movie mom and daughter scripts. It felt like real mom and daughter and real sister and sister. And well, and it helped that that that, that was really her mother and real yes. sister. Yes, yeah. it did. That definitely helps. Um, I also, you know, I'm curious. I obviously I've seen girls before seeing this, so I wonder how I would react to it having seen girls. But Jemima Kirk, I feel like, kind of plays the same characters. You know, slightly different, but the same type of character she does in Girls. Alice yeah. Kropofsky, who I think is my favorite actor on Girls, um, was in it in kind of a slightly underdeveloped role, which I would have maybe liked to see more with. But ultimately, I just, I really liked hanging out in this world. And I didn't, I wasn't, you know, there wasn't a, really a plot to be invested in. All you can be invested in was just the relationships between these characters and the relationship within the family. And I really like that. Even if a lot of the threads pulled out here, didn't really go anywhere. Yeah, I would, I would say, um, Chris, your, your rough draft is dead on, uh, your rough draft comment. Uh, to me, this just was most interesting to watch in terms of, uh, watching Lena Dunham's evolution, thinking about like, Oh, I see, like, I see what she's doing here and I see how much better she does it in girls. Um, I don't know the even including the family element, which I did enjoy in Tiny Furniture. I don't know that there's much, if anything, in Tiny Furniture that there isn't a better version of in Girls, and that's not really a. Uh, it's the, I'm not really trying to disparage the movie when I say that. I think I think what's interesting is that everything Lena Dunham did in this, she's figured out how to do better by the time she makes Girls. It just it's a huge to me artistic leap from Tiny Furniture to Girls, and I think. Girls is much more fully formed, uh, has obviously had more time to grow, but yeah. it just, it feels like a much more assured work than Tiny Furniture does. Um, the movie is is plotless, which doesn't necessarily bother me, but it also, it feels almost as aimless as its characters in terms of, yeah. it never really felt like it had much to say beyond like, this is what this character is doing right now, which is, I mean, like, again, is fine, but was sort of uh, not particularly fulfilling. And there were a lot of, uh, subplots that the movie was sort of brought up and never did anything with and forgot about, um, which like works very well in girls because it can always pick them up again later. Um, doesn't really work in the movie. I also the biggest thing to me was I feel like the line between Lena Dunham and Hannah on girls is much stronger and more clearly developed than the line between Lena Dunham and, or- and Aura in uh, Tiny Furniture, and I think that hurt Tiny Furniture. I think it. It's much. It's it's easy to sympathize and empathize with Hannah and relate to her, and yet still be like, "This is something you shouldn't have done." The show knows it, and we know it as fans. I feel like the movie didn't necessarily know when Aura was doing something she shouldn't be doing, or at least didn't feel like it wanted to make that clear. See, I I will I will disagree with that. I think the I show. I think the too. movie un, unapologetically portrayed uh, Aura in a like. I think what Lena Dunham became very adept at doing with girls is giving you characters that were doing things you disagreed with, which maybe you didn't even, characters you maybe even didn't really like for large portions of the time, but still were always very interested in watching and very invested in. I didn't really get that with Aura. Like, there there were large portions of this movie where I wasn't really sure if I liked Aura a lot. And I think Lena Dunham was okay with that. I think Aura was a character that you weren't always sure that you were supposed to like. I don't know, see, to, to me, like. I, mean, I agree that you weren't always sure that you were supposed to like her, but to me, every time Aura was being completely petulant and throwing a fit in the movie, it sort of felt like the movie and Lena Dunham wanted me to be on her side in the fight. 
and I wasn't always. Um, really, I, I got I the exact opposite in terms of that. Like, I always felt like I was supposed to be like I. The feeling I always got from that was Dunn was supposed to be like saying like, "Look at how ridiculous this character is being." See, and like, I get that. At, this I get is that what you are in girls, and I think that that's done very well in girls. In Tiny Furniture, I just didn't. It didn't work for me. It felt like. I was supposed to be on her side and I wasn't a lot of the time. And even when I wasn't supposed to be on her side, it felt sort of like the, the movie was excusing her actions and saying like, well, you know, she's 20 and whatever and blah, 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 blah. Um, See, I never, that, that, I, that's, that's so, I, I had the entire opposite reaction to it in that like I, for me, there was no excuse in Tiny Furniture. There was no sort of redeeming, um, like, this is why this character like like yeah they're acting really selfish and really immature right here but at the same time this is why you should still like this character this is why they're still a person this is why you should empathize with them in i i almost saw a very like masochistic quality to tiny furniture in that it was almost like um lena dunham sort of taking the 20 something archetype and just really um just tearing it apart just like showing like just how like terrible this kind of a directionless existence is and like like maybe even um taking some of her own because like it, it seems like she really does draw a lot from personal experience maybe even like just bearing some of these past regrets she has just out for the audience like i i, I just found like like the, the problem i had with aura was just like i it almost felt like um lena dunham was maybe just like punishing this character and like wanting the audience to maybe not like her and Sam, you you felt the same way. It sounds like. Uh, yeah, I I think I felt probably more similar to Chris than you on this. Um, again, I feel like I I, I think Girls is certainly a more fully realized uh, work by Lena Dunham, without question. But this movie felt really, really personal to me. And maybe it's because of casting her family in this. But there is there is a... Um, I want to talk about the end. I, I love the ending of the movie with uh, Aura in bed with her mother. Before, before we talk- get there, um, and I do want to get there, I want to say I, I agree completely that it feels personal to me. And actually, I think that might be one of the problems I had with it. Like I said, I think there's a clear line between Lena Dunham and Hannah. I don't think there's as clear a line between Lena Dunham and Aura. And I think that's the problem is even if she is being self-critical in Passage of Tiny Furniture, and I think that's certainly true, it feels like because she's writing less of a character, she wants us more on the side of the character that is similar to her. That's, I mean, that's how it came across to me. So I'll, I, I, I may be slightly less different than you guys on that, but just feeling differently about it, I guess. I don't know. I I, I I kind of agree with Chris on this and that I don't like the ending of the movie punishes her and it punishes her for kind of being this directionless person who doesn't really know what she wants. And I think, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I think it's, I, I think we're supposed to sympathize with her at the very end of the movie after she has sex with the kind of douchey chef pill popper guy. Um, but I don't think she wants us to think that her petulance and she does throw tampers and is kind of a pain in the ass. I don't think she wants us to kind of be on her side for those things. Yeah. I I mean, I I think I kind of agree that she doesn't want us to be on her, on her side. I think she was worse 
at how do I want to put this? I think she was worse at at delineating um, between times when we should be on her side. I'm not I'm not phrasing this well at this point. I think I think girls is much better at saying like you don't always have to be on this person's side, but this is still a person who's full fully realized and um, who has good and bad qualities. I feel like Tiny Furniture didn't necessarily know how to get me on its side when it wanted me to be on its side, and didn't necessarily know how to effectively alienate me when it wanted to alienate me. Both of which I think girls nails. See, I felt nothing but alienation when I was watching Tiny Furniture. I almost thought it was, um, in terms of this character, just like like self-flagellation like the entire time watching, just because it was just like such an unflattering betrayal, portrayal of this um, point in a life, which uh, I, I, I think I, I think a lot of as a 20 something, I found things to identify in there, like not exactly to the extremes that they, that were portrayed, but I, I think it's that kind of directionless portion of your life is something that everybody can relate to. Um, but I, I, I just, it, it just screamed of regrets to me, like personal regrets and decisions not taken, like roads not taken. And just, it was a character that I never really could ever get behind. And I never, I, I can't really myself point out a single instance in that film where I felt like, Lena Dunham actively wanted you to be on this character's side, wanted you to be in their corner. It always felt like this was a character that was pushing you. It was constantly pushing you away. And I felt it much easier to identify with everybody else around Hannah that was so exasperated her, uh, not Hannah, uh, Aura, that was so exasperated her than I felt like it was to identify with Aura. Um, okay. Why don't we move on, Sam, and talk about the ending that you were bringing up? Sure. Um, in the end... I thought it was this really great intimate scene between Aura and her mom in bed. And they're kind of just talking about the night that she's just had. And, you know, Aura, I think, clearly feels like she's made a mistake. And I think, I think part of what I liked so much about the movie and the dynamic between the mother-daughter is, you know, for all of the mistakes and kind of shitty decisions Aura's making about as she's trying to like figure out what she wants to do or who she wants to be, there's still like, there's this groundedness in her relationship with her mother that I really appreciated. And I feel like the movie, the movie ends with the two of them in bed together, kind of talking about this shitty, this shitty night that she's had. And I feel like there's kind of a universal quality to that, even though Aura's, Aura's um, situation, I guess is, is very, very rarefied in that she's the daughter of this famous artist in Tribeca. And she's, you know, she's trying to figure out her life being a waitress and banging weird chef guys. But I like the idea that she, at the end of the day, she needs her mom like anybody else and goes home to that. I felt that was just like, it was, it was a very universal moment in a movie about a character who I think is very alienating for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, I think I think the ending was very strong. Um, it was perhaps even my favorite scene in the movie. I don't know. It works as an ending in so much insofar as like nothing really happened that needed to be closed up. Um, so I think in in that I was most invested in. I think Sam, you've said you were, and Chris, you may have said you were as well. In the family aspects, it worked for me as an ending to the movie. Um, but it did also sort of feel just a little bit like, well, now we have to stop. Well, it felt like now we have to stop. I, I think that that's 
you know, part of the problem of having a movie with zero plot. Um, yeah. It's how I, do you stop? How do you have an ending? Like, they're not... If Lena Dunham ended with her... But, I mean, if we can compare this to Francis Ha for a second. Yeah. Francis Ha felt felt like a movie with more of a plot and a beginning, middle, and end. And, like, it was very much act-based. And it had a very, very satisfying ending because of that. And it had an ending that makes sense and an ending that left me that feeling really good. serves what's come before. Yeah, and it, and it serves the story and the theme. I think for what Lena Dunham was doing, it would have been a disservice to what the whole movie was if she figured out what to do with her life. And I, so I feel like that, that ambiguity at the end was very fitting in that you don't, you know, you don't know. And it's not something that you'll just figure out one day. It's not that easy. It's something really, really difficult. And obviously I don't mind ambiguous endings. Some of my favorite movies have ambiguous endings and I don't even mind plotless movies. Um, I just left this, and I think this is a bias coming from the fact that I love girls as much as I do, and that I know that this leads into girls. I just felt like, yeah, it's clear that she should have gone and made a TV show next, because girls works with plotlessness much better, and works, um, it, it works plotlessly much better, and she doesn't have to come up with, uh, uh, you know, A, she doesn't have to deal with subplots the way she doesn't deal with subplots here. She doesn't have to come up with satisfactory endings, and she can play in the ambiguity in much more interesting ways there. So to me... Well, I think, I think Gir- Girls is, though, a much... I mean, Girls is very, very plot-driven in it terms is, of its relationships. It, it, does, and... it does have... Uh, it does trade in ambiguity, and it does have, uh, you know, episodes that thrive on that ambiguity, I would say. Yeah, I mean, certainly sometimes. But I think Girls, I mean, in comparison to Tiny Furniture feels much, much more traditional in terms of storytelling. Um, yes, I would agree with that. But I think even when it's not being traditional in terms of storytelling, and you had episodes like the Patrick Wilson episode... Well, uh, I think, but that was that was very much an outlier for the series. That, that was an episode that didn't really include any of the other characters. And every week, I mean, the, the Marnie and her, whatever her boyfriend's name is, I mean, that was every week, and that was kind of... You know, I the show the did show... it in its own way, but it was kind of a typical... I think the show breaks narrative rules more often than you're giving it credit for. I mean, you had the similarly placed episode in season one where Hannah goes home and it is without all of the characters for a while. And I think, mm-hmm. I think, the, I think the show plays with narrative and uh, messes around with its plot in more interesting ways than you're giving it credit for at the moment. But I would, I would agree that it's more plot driven than, uh, than Tiny Furniture. And I don't, I don't want it to come across as the fact that girls has more plot makes it better than Tiny Furniture, but it does have more of plot and is better than Tiny Furniture. I'm going to say it's just different than Tiny Furniture. Uh, I mean, they're fine. both... I mean, they're clearly both, both you and Chris like Tiny Furniture better than I did, which is fine. Um, um, Tiny I mean, Furniture I think, just felt I think to the me goals like were very was, different, though. Yeah. Tiny Furniture just felt unfinished to me. It didn't feel like it knew enough what it was doing. It didn't feel like it had... It, it felt like, like I said, it felt like its character. It felt aimless and directionless. Uh, things happened for a while, and then because movies end, they stopped happening. Um, and even when it fainted at story, it ignored and dropped all the stories like nothing and that that works in a tv show but to me it was like it, it felt like it just felt like a, a not wholly formed piece of art <laughs> yeah and I, I i think i would agree with that but like at the same time you gotta remember that this was really lena dunham's debut feature like this oh was yeah her... and and i i want to make it clear i liked tiny furniture and i'm I, yeah. i'm not criticizing it as a movie 
Uh, I mean, I'm criticizing things about it. <laughs> sure. Uh, but I think it was a, a very solid movie and an absolutely... I, well, I won't go as far as to say absolutely stellar, but an incredibly solid debut film. Like, from someone so young and uh, for it being, you know, the first full-length film, I'm sure she's done short films in school or whatever before this, but her first full-length feature, it's incredibly successful in a whole lot of ways. Well, I think Tiny Furniture, I think it came out when, I think it was like released when she was 24. Yeah. So this thing was probably written and filmed when she was 22, 23, so. Yeah, and I mean, considering that I am. Look what we're doing now. I am older now than she was when she was writing and, and directing this. Like, it's it's shocking uh, what she was able to accomplish. And there are a lot of really good things about the movie that I feel like it, I, I've sort of, because you guys both really enjoyed it, I've been playing the, like, I didn't like these things about it flute, but there are a lot of things I really did like about the movie. There are, uh, I think she's very good in it. Uh, I think a lot of the characters and a lot of the actors are pretty good in it. Um, and I think there are a lot of really interesting things about it. I just think the takeaway from me at the end of the day was, like, this was good, and it was clearly, like, the beginning of, of a great artist, and I've seen what she's done since, and I've loved it even more. Yeah, that's good way to close. Uh, yeah, any any last thoughts? Wow, what a packed show, you guys. Pack I show. can't wait. I can't wait for Tiny Furniture 2. <laughs> Electric Boogaloo. It'll be great. Or Tiny Girls. Tiny Girl Tiny Furniture. <laughs> Tiny Girl Furniture. Um, all right. Well, before we close, uh, I have to give out the Rachel Tardif Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week. This one is a cakewalk. Uh, congratulations to Dan Harmon, who did the undoable by somehow magically being rehired and returning to his place at the Forum Community. This has never been done Ooh. before. We love him. We loved the show he made. And I, I hope and expect that I might love the show he makes again. So congratulations, Dan. Uh, come on down. You can pick up your trophy and small cash prize. As always, listeners, you can visit us at ReviewBeNamed.com. You can email us at ReviewBeNamed at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at ReviewBeNamed. Do one or all of those things. We will talk to you. We will engage in conversation with you. And it'll be great. Um, for now, thanks for listening to this extra special and extra long podcast. And we'll be back next week with more random pop culture absurdity. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.